We're going to be talking a lot about the church this morning because that's what Paul is kind of focusing on, even more particularly teachers in the church, because that's what Paul's been focusing on for quite a bit. He's, uh, he started out back in chapter 1 uh, addressing the division in the church that people had, saying, well, I follow this teacher, and I follow that teacher, and, and these things were splitting apart the church. And so he, he went into this teaching about what is wise and what is not wise because the Corinthians were kind of adopting human ways and societal ways of pursuing excellence and pursuing status. They're a status-hungry people, and they're doing it in the church. And so they were, they were doing some things that Paul would describe as uh, emptying the cross of its power. That's not a good thing. Sounds bad, doesn't it? It is bad. And churches aren't supposed to do that, and, and Christians aren't supposed to do that. So, so Paul's still working on that, and he's kind of kind of getting back to it now. He's kind of getting back to addressing that head-on here in chapter 3. So let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 17. This is the Word of God. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready. Few are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Well, the first thing that we might notice is that Paul calls the Corinthians brothers. Paul is addressing the men and women of the church 
who are believers. And he has done so in chapter 1, he's done so in chapter 2, and it's an important starting point for us here in chapter 3 because there's some, there's some fire language. And so we want to understand that Paul says, I'm talking to you brothers, I'm talking to the church. And then Paul evaluates their spirituality in the past with their spirituality in the present. When I first came to you and preached nothing but Christ crucified to you and you received the Spirit of God and you placed your faith in the power of the cross, you were still fleshly people. What does Paul mean when he says that they were still people of the flesh? Well, he explains in the very next phrase. He gives the definition of what he means. You were brand new infant Christians. You were little baby Christians. You had little baby Christian faith. Now, what do you feed infants? You feed them milk because they can digest milk, and it's good for them. You don't take a T-bone steak off the grill, throw it on a plate, and set it in front of a baby and say, gobble it up because they can't. The baby needs milk to grow them to a point, to the point when they're ready for solid food. Now Paul is getting to the problem in the church in Corinth. Paul was teaching in Corinth. Remember when he came, for 18 months he was there, proclaiming the gospel, teaching them before he had to leave. And then Apollos came and provided good teaching for the time that he was there. And now Paul's writing, and it's been five years. And this church should have attained some measure of maturity in the faith. But Paul says, even now... You are not ready for solid food. That's a rebuke. You should be, but you're not. You should be way more spiritual, way more mature than you are. You're still just a bunch of babies. That's what the Corinthians are hearing. Now, it was right and expected to feed the gospel milk when they were babies. You know, the the basic gospel truths that spiritual infants need to be assured of, the rudiments of the gospel, your sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life, the Son of God, and gave his life on the cross as the only acceptable sacrifice for your sin. By spirit-given faith in his sin-atoning death and life-giving resurrection from the dead, all by the grace of God, you have been rescued from the just wrath of God upon your sin and instead have eternal life with God in Christ. Hallelujah. They need to hear that. And they need to hear it over and over so that they have those basics. And the Holy Spirit brings true spiritual transformation. Right, Because just before this, Paul was talking about the natural man who doesn't have the Spirit and the spiritual man who does have the Spirit. And the difference is that the Holy Spirit brings true spiritual transformation. You're no longer the natural person. You're a spiritual person. You grow spiritual attitudes then. And you begin practicing spiritual actions then. But they hadn't grown at all. They were still fleshly, just as they were at the beginning. Instead of employing the ways of the Spirit to their Christian lives, they were applying merely human ways to their Christian lives. We've been talking about this for two chapters now. And he says, you're still acting fleshly. In what way were they still 
sifting fleshly. Well, Paul confronts them with the evidence in verse 3. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not behaving in a human way? And he goes back to their behavior that divides them. They are bickering. One says, I follow Christ because he's the best. I follow Paul because he's the best. Uh Uh-uh, I follow Apollos because he's the best. And the Corinthians, they're they're just behaving like babies. uh, You guys remember Brad Parker. Brad preached here, a friend of ours from Vermont, uh, not quite a year ago, almost a year ago. And uh, in talking about this, Brad says that this argument, well, I follow Paul, well, I follow Apollos, it's about one step up from my dad can beat up your dad. Who says things like, my dad can beat up your dad? Kindergartners. Babies. The, kindergarten, the, the Corinthians are behaving like spiritual kindergartners. And the Corinthians were supposed to move on from the milk of the cross to the milk of Christ, or the milk of Christ crucified, the milk of the cross, to the meat of the cross, and the meat of Christ crucified. Instead, they had moved on from gospel milk to human ways. See how it doesn't track. The content of the meat and the milk is still the cross. It's still Christ crucified. They left behind the ways of the cross to grow spiritually and took up human ways of success. Hey, let's do what we do out in the business world, out in the political world, out in the society. Apply those things and we'll be really successful in our spiritual lives and in the church. They employed their best business practices for growth and and played politics to win and the values of society to stay relevant because they didn't want to be looking like foolish people. They genuinely thought they were being super spiritual when they were actually being childish and immature and fleshly. Not spiritual at all. So Paul tells them, are you not being merely human? You know, we really need to take heed here. You see, the Corinthians' struggle with favorites may seem harmless to us, but it's not. There's a reason why Paul's taking this up. Far from it. Their immaturity manifested itself in particular things. They were jealous of one another. And their jealousy of one another led to strife in the church, right? Friction, relational friction between people and groups of people. None of us is free from the struggle against our sin. The Spirit... And our flesh wage war, and they will. They wage war within us until Christ comes and glorifies us. Every brother and sister is susceptible to jealousy of another brother or sister. And every church is a hair's breadth away from issues of strife. So we must remember that we have the Spirit of God. And He has made known to us the things freely given to us by God. Peace. And unity in Christ. Truth and understanding by Christ. Love and forgiveness through Christ. We're weak. We're weak. 
But we're one in Christ, and Christ is strong. The normal Christian life is the Spirit-filled life. We're to grow in Christ-likeness and make progress in the faith. Now, sometimes that progress is slow, but it is not normal for Christians not to grow. And yet we evaluate our spirituality by the Spirit of God that indwells us. He gave us the cross. He gave us Christ crucified. We need to cling to Christ. So the Corinthians are doing damage to the church by the way they're thinking about their teachers and the way they're thinking about the church. So Paul issues some correctives. Pick up in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are, not, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. The first thing that Paul says is that church leaders are servants. And when he says that, he's taking dead aim at the Corinthians' desire to idolize their teachers by calling them servants. You, you want to put them up here, I'm telling you they're down here, right? They're servants. The Corinthians were a status-seeking people. This is deflating to them. Wait, we were, we're, we're trying to lift our teachers up and lift ourselves up with them. And Paul completely deflates their overly and wrongfully exalting of their teachers. It's because they have so identified with their favorite teacher that they've caused these divisions in the church. They focus on personalities or appearance or performance. But Paul doesn't say, who is Apollos or who is Paul? He says, what? What is Paul? And Paul is not among the rich and the famous. He's not a, among those who flourish rhetorically in public. He's just a servant. So, Paul wants us to think not too highly of our teachers. And not to think of them in worldly terms and worldly status. But also, <laughs> don't think too lowly of your teachers either. After all, through their labors and their teaching, you came to believe. But they are just servants in the church. See, Paul's talking about apostles like himself. He's talking about great historic teachers like Apollos. And he's talking about pastors and elders in churches today. And he says their tasks were assigned them by God. God assigned Paul to preach the gospel that planted the church in Corinth about five years before he wrote this letter, when he was there for 18 months. But God caused it to take root and grow. God assigned Apollos to preach the gospel to the church that, that watered the church so that it could grow. But God is the one who caused it to grow. 
So neither Paul, nor Apollos, nor any pastor or elder in the church is anything. Let me say it this way. They're nothing compared to God who is the one who gives the growth. The only thing value about Paul is who he serves. What Paul did as a servant was to preach the gospel in demonstration of the Spirit of God, and God did all the rest. And you have no basis, he tells them, for preferring Paul to Apollos or Apollos to Paul because God is the one who gave them their assignments. <laughs> you don't like what Paul did? Well, God told him to do that. You don't like what Apollos did? Well, God gave him that assignment. Neither one of them has their own agenda. They're not in competition with one another. They're both doing their assigned tasks for God, who is the farmer who owns the field and gives the growth. Do you see how foolish Paul tells the Corinthians they've been? You've been so foolish. This isn't how it works. The church is not about power or position. It's about serving. And Paul says, we are God's fellow workers. So don't think of us too highly, but also not too lowly. Because, after all, God is feeding you through his servants. Some of you are receiving the milk of the gospel, and some of you are receiving the meat of the gospel through God's fellow workers. So if you want something practical to do to serve your own soul and to bring growth to your church, pray for your teachers and elders. Pray for them to receive God's grace to minister well. Grace to receive God's ministry to them. Grace to study and understand and know God's word. Grace to, grace to their wives and their children. Grace for yourself to make their, their labor a joy. Because they are just servants. And they need your thoughtful concern in prayer. Still, when they teach, it is the power of the Spirit and it is the power of Christ and the will of God that brings the growth. It is God who acts through His Word, read or heard, and He gives increase. You see, the Corinthian church had lost sight of that. Don't you lose sight of that. Where is God's power and growth to be manifested? In God's field. Do you see that? The church. God is growing his crop in his field. Not out in the wild, but in a fenced-off field. God is working according to God's plan. God's field is laid out according to God's plan, not randomly. He has determined how his garden will grow. Not the way the Corinthians want it to, but the way that he wants it to. He's appointed his servants. He has ordained how it will bear fruit. He keeps his field in order. He prunes sometimes and fertilizes other times. And he is the one who ensures the growth and flourishing. The Corinthians have the wrong model for ministry and the wrong model for the church. 
because it is all Christ's work. And all of God's servants, Paul says, are here to point to Christ. You are God's field. You are God's building, Paul says. Paul adopts a new metaphor so that he can say more about himself and the teachers in the church. Pick up in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that the one has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is uh, burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, Paul's not boasting when he says, I built as a master builder. He's just stating a fact. The The same fact that he would say is, I am an apostle of Christ by the will of God. He's simply stating a fact that by God's grace, he is like a wise building contractor. I know the ESV says skilled, but it's, it's the Greek word Sophia. It's wise, which, which makes sense because he's been talking about the need for godly wisdom all along. He's a wise building contractor, and, and Paul happened to be the one, first one on the job site in Corinth, and he laid the foundation for the church. And what is that foundation? Jesus Christ, the cross. The gospel of Christ crucified. (laughs) He laid the foundation, what the world considers the height of folly and to be ridiculed, Paul preaches as the foundation of the church. The very stable base layer upon which true spirituality and the Christian life are built. Jesus is the church's one and only foundation, the wisdom of God for the salvation of sinners. He's the foundation. Then, by the grace of God, other teachers came after Paul to build up the church. So he's still addressing teachers and leaders in the church, and Paul says, let each one take care how he builds upon it, it being the foundation. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul Paul warns these teachers, and he warns the church about teachers. First, teachers must not try to build another foundation on top of, or next to, or far away from Jesus and his gospel. If you do, you're not building God's church. Now, the sign out front may say church, but that's not what you're building. Paul says, remember, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, so that your faith might rest in the wisdom of Not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's a reason why Christ has to be the foundation. Paul would not shift the building. Paul would not misalign the building or build carelessly in any way that might allow those people to place their faith in anyone other than Jesus. If he built a crooked building, he'd get a crooked outcome. People would place their faith in the wisdom of men or great speakers instead of Christ. If they put their faith in the wisdom of men, it was was not because of what Paul taught them. Second, teachers must build with materials that will last. 
The gospel is going to last. The church, the true church is going to last. You need to build upon that foundation with things that are going to last so that the church that is built will survive the test by fire. The fire here is the judgment of God on the last day. Jesus, who is the church's one foundation, will himself discern the eternality of the church, revealing who built with perishable materials and who built with imperishable materials. Now, the Corinthians are given to build with perishable things, right? Like, like the flourishing oratory skills of their teachers, which actually throw attention on the, on the builder and detract from the foundation, which is the cross. Empty the cross of its power. They tended to do that. He's already shown that. He's addressing that. Don't you think that teachers and church leaders today are tempted to do things in a merely human way that seem wise but actually empty the cross of its power? If it was happening in the church here in Corinth, don't you think it could happen in the church today? Isn't there pressure to do what other churches are doing? To do popular things? To be more popular? To feel that we, we have to do something in the public eye? To think we need multiple programs for every age group? To play cooler songs for a more contemporary vibe? See, the fire will reveal whether those things are perishable or imperishable. Whether they're gold, silver, and precious stones, or whether they're woods, hay, and stubble. Whether they align with Christ crucified, or whether they were just misplaced fluff. Cultural candy. Things valued by the natural person that are not even milk to the spiritual person. See, the contrast isn't between good and evil. It's between wise and foolish. Time well spent, effort well spent, labor well-centered, or wasted. Meaningless, profitless, growthless. Because the third thing is that the teachers who build on the true foundation will be rewarded for their work. Just as we would expect. Not based on their personality or popularity. Not even on the size of their church or the songs that they sang. But on their ability and willingness and faithfulness to build upon the gospel with the gospel. Those whose work is burned up will suffer loss. What loss? Well, the loss of all their... Useless labor, all that stuff they spent their time on. All those things that they kind of globbed on to the church, thinking it would make a difference. This is not the judgment of souls, but of the servant's labor. Perhaps it will be all their efforts to build a big church, or all of their effort to build a relevant church, or all of their effort to build a popular church, but all in human ways. In human ways. In my, in my preparing, I'm struck by these words from D.A. Carson. 
This ought to be extremely sobering to all those who are engaged in vocational ministry. It is possible to build the church in such a shoddy materials that at the last day you will have nothing to show for your life. People may come, feel helped, join corporate worship, serve on committees, teach Sunday school classes, bring their friends, enjoy fellowship, raise funds, participate in counseling sessions and self-help groups, but still not really know the Lord. For the church is being built with large portions of charm, personality, easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences, and people smarts, but without the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we may be winning more adherents than converts. The fundamental non-negotiable that without which the church is no longer the church of the gospel, God's folly, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In eternity, did that man's labor mean anything to Christ? Either way, if he's a saved man, then he himself will be saved. Not his work, but he will be saved. It's a sober warning. Teachers, teach on the foundation. Churches, look for church teachers who will church on the found, uh, preach on the foundation. Because you need to cling to Christ. And so Paul now, he's going to shift his attention from the teachers alone to the whole church. He's going to broaden this in verse 16. Our last two verses for this morning. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Do you know how many temples there were in the city of Corinth? I don't know. Lots. Lots. Many of them are listed. And, and high up, remember the Acrocorinth, that hilltop from which you could see all the way to the Acropolis in Athens? Remember that, that very high spot that commanded a view of the whole city? On top of the Acrocorinth was built the Temple of Aphrodite. And that temple was filled with temple prostitutes. Temples were built to Poseidon. Temples to Apollo, to Hermes, temples to Athena, Fortuna, and Isis. And just in case they missed any, they built a Pantheon temple, which is built for the worship of all gods. So you can always go there in case you didn't have an individualized temple to worship. And people looked at these stone buildings to see the representation of their false god. And they knew what was inside that temple and what people did in those temples in the names of their gods. And Paul looks at these Christians and he says to this church in Corinth, not only are you God's field, not only are you God's building, you are God's temple. You are God's temple in Corinth. You, plural, the church, are the very temple of the living God. You have a living foundation who is Christ. And you, the local church, are what is built upon Christ. And Paul says two things about every local church. 
that you are God's and that you are holy. That you belong to God and that you are holy. Don't you know that you are God's temple? People look at you to see the living God represented on earth. You, men, women, and children are the temple of the living God in this pagan place. You belong to God. You're God's. Christ bought you with his shed blood on the cross. That's why this gospel work on the cross is our foundation. And having been born again in him, we now grow up in him. Sometimes, maybe often, because there are many churches here in town, and we decide which church to go to, that we tend to think that the church of our choosing is our church. And so we get to decide what to do and what not to do, and how to do it. No. This local church, like the local church in the city of Corinth, is God's temple. It's His. Paul is telling us about the true nature of the church, so that we would have right attitudes about the church. It belongs to God. It's not mine. It's not yours. We are His. So that we would have right attitudes about how we are to live together. Since we collectively are the church. Because we're God's church. And we should live together the way He tells us to live together. And calls us to live together. Each of us is concerned, I think, about our own personal holiness. That's true of you, isn't it? You're concerned about your own personal holiness. But I think we have have a pretty soft view of the church's holiness. I'm not sure we're as concerned about our church's holiness. What about the holiness of God's church? Are you concerned about that? Because you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells within you. There's a progression here. I think Paul's getting all of his understanding about this temple from the Old Testament. Remember in the Old Testament, God was with his people in the garden. He talks about being a fellow worker in the field. And then, and then there, he talks about a building. Well, that's, that's the tabernacle. And then there is a temple. It was, there was the same progression in Paul's thinking as he goes along. Because this is the place where God dwells with his people. God is present with his people in the Holy Spirit. And like the church in Corinth, we greatly underestimate the power and presence of God in this church. Oh no. A few of our members are on vacation in the crowds of little small this morning. Oh no. We're not as powerful a church. We're not as spirit-filled a church. Not true. We don't have to use best business practices and social popularity contests to grow the church as if the Holy Spirit was not present with us. He is. Or as if the Holy Spirit just didn't know what he was doing. He does. Paul is reminding us of the nature of the local church. We need to recognize that this church, this church is filled with the Spirit of God who is doing the work of God in God's temple, God's way. That's happening. 
We are holy because God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let's think about it this way because this is what Paul is saying. Let's replace the words Corinthian church with Christ Fellowship Church. Christ Fellowship is God's temple here in this place. God's Holy Spirit dwells in Christ Fellowship. And Christ Fellowship is holy. Therefore, if anyone destroys Christ Fellowship Church, God will destroy him. This is no longer about just teachers. It's about anyone in the church. That is how seriously God is about his temple because that is how precious the church is to God because it was purchased by his son's blood on the cross. Petty jealousies, petty gossips, petty divisions are not petty. They are in every way an attack on God's holy temple and God's holy spirit. And he will destroy those who destroy his temple. You see, Paul's telling the Corinthians, you can't go on like this. We've had the introductory teaching, and now what you need to understand is you cannot go on like this in jealousy and strife with division in the church that is God's church. They have to break one way or the other. They have to repent and come in line with the Spirit of God or reveal that they're actually the natural man. That's why this sober warning to teachers is also to the whole church. But remember who's giving the warning. Do you remember who's giving the warning? Do you remember what the Apostle Paul was doing, busy doing, aggressively doing, before he came to the cross of Christ? He was hell-bent on destroying the church. He knows what he's talking about. He knows the fate of those who would destroy God's temple. And he also knows what he's talking about then when he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Turn to Christ for mercy. Love God's church because it is the display of God's love to sinners. Pray for the work of the church and the purity of the church. 
And remember that you are God's holy, spirit-indwelled temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the Apostle's word. We want to thank you for the message of Christ crucified by which we came to be saved. By your grace. We thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit that we are not alone. And that we are not apart from God, but you are with us. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. This church body is the temple of God. Help us to understand this and live like it, we pray. All for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.